Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I am thrilled to be right here for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week, and I can't believe it's my final show for 2023. Joining me this evening is federal LNP member for Hinkler, Keith Pitt, to talk about the very welcome departure of Queensland Labor Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. Israeli politician Sharon Haskell will give us the latest on the war in the Middle East. And I will also speak to Chief of Staff to One Nation Senator Pauline Hanson and new candidate for the seat of Keppel in the Queensland state election next year, James Ashby, about his upcoming election campaign. But first... Christmas has come early for the great state of Queensland as one of the rottenest politicians the nation has ever seen took her final bow. Yes, Anastasia Palaszczuk, famed for her ham-fisted state border closure during the COVID years that destroyed businesses and ripped families apart, announced on Sunday that this week would be her final week, not just as Premier, but in politics. Queensland is in good shape, which is why now it's time for me to leave. And honestly, when I heard the news, I felt a euphoria that can only be demonstrated by the antics of the delightful crustaceans in the infamous dancing crabs meme. a good day. Now, I'm sure you've heard commentary all week about how it was the union bosses who stepped in and demanded she depart, and how Health Minister Shannon Fentiman put her hat in the ring for the leadership and then withdrew it, and how the eventual winner of the premiership was Deputy Premier Stephen Miles, God help us. But I'm not going to talk about all of those technicalities today, no. I've waited too long for this day to waste the time on things you likely already know by now. This editorial, my final editorial of 2023, is about giving Anastasia Palaszczuk, Australia's last remaining COVID premier, the send-off she so richly deserves. How poetic that the day Anastasia Palaszczuk announced her much longed for departure from politics landed on the first anniversary of my wedding celebration, which was postponed twice over a period of three years thanks to Palaszczuk's border closure. A border closure which also prevented me from seeing my parents, who I love dearly, for over a year. Palaszczuk's border closure, which ran for the better part of both 2020 and 2021, was nothing more than an opportunistic snatching of the public's COVID anxiety for her own political gain. Yep, dear old Anastasia had a state election to win in 2020, and since the incompetence of her government and her own distinct lack of talent would likely have made it difficult for her to win it on the merits, she decided to harness the toxic parochialism of Queenslanders directed at the southern states in order to paint southerners as lepers, thus frightening the population of Queensland into voting for her. It was the oldest political play in the book, going back millennia. Give the public a common enemy, in this case, COVID and anyone who might have it, and present yourself as the only thing that can defeat that enemy. In Anastasia's case, 
She presented herself as the only thing standing between Queenslanders and certain death by coronavirus. Never mind the fact that in over 80% of cases it presented as a mild flu, and that most people have a more than 99% chance of surviving the illness, even pre-vaccine. But of course, the truth didn't matter to Anastasia Palaszczuk. She just wanted to win her little election and continue to enjoy all the pomp and circumstance that leadership had to offer. It strikes me that Anastasia loves the notion of being popular. She is certainly one of the most poll-driven politicians you'll ever come across. This even applied to her government's COVID restrictions. Who could forget when, in 2020 and 2021, the Australian newspaper ran a series of articles exposing the Palaszczuk government for spending half a million dollars worth of taxpayers' money to poll Queenslanders monthly on their feelings about COVID and COVID restrictions in May 2020. When she claimed this was to help the government with their communication strategy and advertising campaigns, the questions included things like, what advice would you give to leaders on how to manage the crisis? Queenslanders were also asked about their views on the economic impacts of lockdowns versus health risks, the triggers that should ease restrictions, and the merits of border closures. Now call me crazy, but those sound like questions geared towards seeing which restrictions would make Anastasia more popular with the public, not how to communicate best with them. This was very much on the nose, considering her insistence that all the COVID measures were based solely on the sacred health advice, which was put to her by this reporter in 2021. According to the document that your department has authored, it's not about messaging, it's not about advertising exclusively. It says, and I quote, this research will help guide the decision-making and communications approach around the lifting restrictions. The decision-making. Well, that's not correct. Well, I, I, but I reject that. Right, so it also says that there are 17 waves of research uh, that are coming in, and that again, it shows that it's, it's about guiding your decision-making. No, well, that's not correct, Michael. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Anastasia addressed those dark COVID days, well, dark for everyone else, not so dark for her, in her outgoing press conference on Sunday. During the pandemic, I had press conferences nearly every day alongside the police commissioner and the chief health officer, all women. And I think when, uh, during those uh, COVID times about all the, um, the people's lives that were saved. Lives? You want to talk about lives? Well, aside from the fact there's no real way of measuring just how many lives Anastasia supposedly saved with her ridiculous COVID response, Queensland is, after all, sunny and spacious, not the ideal environment for a coronavirus to thrive in. What's, over, what's often overlooked is the lives lost because of Queensland's COVID response. Like, for instance, the life of an unborn twin, whose mother from Ballina, New South Wales, was unable to go to a Gold Coast hospital thanks to the border closure when her babies needed urgent surgery. Instead, she had to wait 16 hours for an emergency flight to have the surgery in Sydney. As a result, one of her unborn babies died. But here's what Anastasia had to say about it. 
You have to understand too, like people living in New South Wales, they have New South Wales hospitals. In Queensland, we have Queensland hospitals. Queensland hospitals are for Queenslanders. Wow. And what about former RAAF officer Matt Carroll, 53, of Narangba, north of Brisbane, who committed suicide in hotel quarantine on September 27, 2021, two days after arriving back in Queensland from Canberra? Thanks to Anastasia's border closure, Matt Carroll was forced into quarantine, even though he was badly depressed and had already made an attempt to take his own life in Canberra and had been placed involuntarily in Canberra Hospital's psychiatric ward for two weeks. And yet this man, a veteran who had been suffering from major depression since the death of his twin brother the year before and his mother also being diagnosed with the disease, was an identified mental health risk and had already tried to take his own life, was still forced into isolation in hotel quarantine. He left behind a wife and a 19-year-old daughter. His widow stated to the Courier-Mail after the tragic event that she believed her husband would still have been alive had he been granted the exemption he was trying to get and allowed to quarantine at home. She said she felt being forced into hotel quarantine may have pushed him over the edge. And he wasn't the only one. Brendan Luxton was another victim of hotel quarantine in July 2020. He was also forced into quarantine and despite his family noticing his deteriorating mental health while he was in isolation, he was not granted the exemption his family requested to allow him to finish his quarantine at home. In fact, the exemption request was never processed. So inept was the system in place in Queensland at the time for hotel quarantine. Brendan finished his two weeks of hotel quarantine, went home and committed suicide the very next day. Those terrible tragedies are likely the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the damage the Palaszczuk government's COVID response did to people's mental health. But none of that, in my opinion, seems to matter to Anastasia. She won her election in 2020 and remained relatively popular until this year when she started slipping in the polls. How that must have hurt such a poll-obsessed premier. And no wonder Queenslanders finally started to wise up to her. Look at the state of the state. Youth crime is all but out of control. The state's health system is a shambles. The Australian Medical Association warned last month that ambulance ramping in Queensland was at a crisis point after two patients died while waiting for ambulances. The state has a large amount of debt and the two industries that tend to buoy the state up economically, coal and gas, are so ideologically opposed by the Labor Party that her government chose to strangle them with regulations and royalties. In Queensland, the resources sector has the highest royalty taxes in the world, which will erode jobs and deter investment. As such, all of this has come around to bite Anastasia Palaszczuk. And she obviously doesn't want to go. This was made clear by the tears she shed during her final presser. Thank you to my cabinet and my staff. Thank you to the Labor Party to all of our frontline workers, but most of all, thank you to every single Queensland. It's been the greatest on my life, 
and our best days are well and truly ahead of us. Merry Christmas. Oh, boo-hoo. Anastasia Palaszczuk was a terrible premier who lucked out when the pandemic hit our shores as it enabled her to mobilise voters by terrorising them and she was gifted with a largely inept LNP opposition who allowed her and her appalling government to get away with every gaffe, stumble and policy failure. She deserves everything she's getting and it is long overdue. It was this comment in her presser, however, that really struck me. There has been so much that has happened, but for me, meeting the people of this state, and can I say to everyone, if you see me out and about, please come and say hello. Don't be a stranger. Okay, Anastasia Palaszczuk. If I see you out and about, I will most definitely say hello. And I'll be sure to also tell you exactly what I think of you and your government. Joining us to discuss all of that and more is LNP federal member for Hinkler, the wonderful Keith Pitt. Keith, it is so lovely to have you here this evening. How are you? Well, fantastic. I'm in Queensland. I'm actually at home for a change in Bundaberg. Christmas is coming. How good could it be? Oh, exactly. It, it is the season, certainly. And this news of Anastasia Palaszczuk's departure from politics certainly makes for a festive time of year. What was your initial reaction and what was the reaction of the LNP? Well, firstly, this is a Christmas gift for the <laughs> LNP. We don't even have to unwrap. I mean, <laughs> when they were doing the online polling, I went on five times and voted for Stephen Miles. <laughs> He's fantastic for us. Uh, anyone whose nickname is Giggle shouldn't be the Premier and certainly shouldn't be anywhere near Treasury. Uh, but it doesn't matter. Changing the captain of the Titanic won't change the outcome. Uh, we still have enormous problems with youth crime, ambulance ramping, people literally dying in ambulances. Uh, I had break-ins across the weekend again in Harvey Bay in my oh. patch, uh, and for some of them three or four times this year. It's just unacceptable. Oh, gosh, yes. It, it, she's really, I mean, she can tout her credentials all she wants, but if you look at the state of the state, um, it's, there's, there's actually a few problems there. And with Stephen Miles at the helm, as you say, Giggles is not a good nickname. I, I've called him a few other nicknames um, in private that I can't really say publicly. Uh, but what do you think we can expect from Stephen Miles as Queensland's new Premier? Well, in fact, he's not the Premier. Uh, the unions are the Premier. <laughs> Gary Bullock is the Premier. And they don't even hide this anymore, Daisy. Uh, mm. the, the idea that they decide who the Premier of Queensland is. There's not a single union official that is voted in by the people of Queensland. Not one. Uh, now, this stuff used to be all done behind closed doors. It was always kept very quiet. But now we see them you know, building their own profile and loud and proud about the fact that they've picked the Premier They'll determine the cabinet. They decide where Queensland goes, and not one of them is elected by a single voter in Queensland. Mm, and I find that um, extremely alarming because I, I only moved to Queensland five years ago um, and I actually hadn't really seen the unions in action in their lobbying and their politicking until now. I mean, they, they blatantly, it was reported by the Australian, they blatantly, they just went in, said, Anastasia, you gotta go because we say so. And she just jumped at, at their call. I, I mean, how can they just shamelessly do this, Keith? Well, how do they keep getting away with it is the mm. question. 
I mean, surely, surely the people of Queensland now understand that it doesn't matter who they're voting for in Labor, they are getting a union-run organisation. Uh, and you've only got to look at the CFMEU tax, as it's known, this massive increase in the cost of construction in Queensland because the Labor government did a deal that benefits the CFMEU. And guess who pays? Mm. It's the taxpayer. It's everyone that's trying to buy a new apartment because the price is way higher than it should be because of deals struck by the Queensland Labor government, which are controlled by the unions. Mm, it's, it's, it is extraordinary to see. Uh, and look, it's, the next 12 months are going to be interesting. We've got an election, state election, um, late next year. Uh, it is not looking good in the polls for Labor. They've been slipping all year. Um, I think David Crucifulli is actually doing a pretty good job as opposition leader. It's great to have someone in there who has, you know, who's not afraid of a, a little bit of a uh, metaphorical fist fight occasionally, a war of words. Um, Stephen Miles has less than 12 months to restore confidence in Queensland Labor. Do you think he can do it? Well, you know the old saying in Labor, whatever it takes. <laughs> uh, there'll be an election here in October of 2024. Uh, and, you know, I, I think he'll rub out the Gabba's redevelopment because that is incredibly unpopular. They're spending enormous amounts of money on the Olympics. And yet we have people living in tents, literally, along the rivers, not only in Brisbane, but in my patch as well here in Bundaberg and on the beaches of Harvey Bay. I mean, surely they can start to focus on what matters. And that is that is the people who can't afford to live, who can't afford to pay their rent. But their chances are still uh, you know, quite high, in my view. Uh, they've stacked the public service. There are so many people employed now by the government. It's just incredible. Uh, we'll have some challenges in the regions with minor parties like Catter and One Nation and others mm. uh, who will be looking to take out uh, some of those regional seats. Uh, and if they're successful, it just makes it even harder. So if you want to change a government, you've got to be voting for the Liberal National Party. Mm, look, you you mentioned um, homelessness, um, and you're, you're right. There are actually statistics from the Queensland Council of Social Services reported uh, that since 2017, homelessness across the state has risen 22%. And we're also seeing images of tent cities in Brisbane. Um, what do you think is to blame for this hike? Is this Labor's policies? Well, it's a combination of Labor's policies at a federal and a state level. Yeah. At a state level, they've made it so much more difficult for, you know, the mum and dad investor to own a rental property. For, for many of them, it's the second biggest asset they'll ever own outside their own home. And uh, unfortunately, tenants have all the powers. Uh, you can't even decide whether your tenant's allowed to have a dog or not in your own house. Uh, so mm. what's happened is they've taken the opportunity for capital because the prices went up. They haven't come back into the market because they think it's just too hard and the returns aren't worth it. And what that means is there's less houses available for rent. There are literally 100 plus applications for every available rental in the southeast corner, which is just extraordinary. Uh, and then at a federal level, you've got uh, Mr Chalmers, who is hooking 40% more taxes, all of those people with bracket creep. So you're paying more in tax, you're paying more for mortgages because the interest rates have increased. We've just seen unemployment start to slip back up. So you're getting it in the neck both ways, Daisy. You're paying mm. more tax, more in costs, more for food, more for living costs, more for rent. And it's all because we have federal and state Labor governments. And the mm. result, people living in tents and caravans.
Mm. Well, I'll tell you, I, I actually had an interesting conversation with my um, lovely Uber driver on the way to the studio. I always have v very interesting conversations with Uber drivers, and he said um, his wife was really elated recently because her, her salary had gone up, but he said, hey, you wait until you get your weekly pay slip. Lo and behold, bracket creep, bracket creep kicked in, and she got less cash in her hand after her salary had gone up than she had before it had gone up because she hit that other bracket. And I just think, you know, the fact that we live that way as a nation is outrageous because there is no incentive. And I, I'm wondering, Keith, we know Labor is not keen to instigate those stage three tax cuts. Um, I have to ask your opinion. Do you think they will have uh, the goal to get rid of that final stage of tax cuts? Oh, of course they will, Daisy. Mm. I mean, we implemented stage one and two. Uh, three was legislated because Labor knew that it would be electoral poison for them in the last federal campaign. Mm. But they've broken every other promise. Why, why would they not break this one? I mean, Chris Bowen came out at the COP this week and said we've got to get rid of fossil fuels. <laughs> 1.2 million Australian jobs. 1.2 million. Mm. That's almost half a trillion dollars worth of economic activity. So they've broken every other promise they've made. There'll be no, no challenges to them breaking this one. Uh, mm -hmm. And it is all about increasing the tax take so that they can meet their ideology. Uh, and that is all, all it is. They're just ideological decisions that line up with their socialist background. Mm, I, I think you, I think you might be right on that. There is a, a significant sort of ideological undercurrent um, that underruns dear old Jim Chalmers. I mean, we all read that article, the six thousand word, you know, uh, manifesto that he wrote. Jimbonomics. Jimbonomics. I know. We we all read that article that he wrote talking about uh, what they call it values based capitalism, which is basically just state stakeholder capitalism that the world, you know, they talk about it Davos. Um, you know, he's he's clearly very intent on reshaping the economy. Um, but as we've seen this week, Jim Chalmers, look, he's tipped to bring a surplus to next year's budget. Uh, but this slashing of the deficit has largely been because people are paying more tax. How can he get up there with a straight face and tout Labor's financial supposed credentials when this is what's given him this surplus? Well, it's been delivered because we've got record uh, exports in terms of resources and energy, more than $400 billion. Mm. The tax take has increased uh, because more people are employed because they have to be. Yeah. Many of them are taking second jobs to try and pay their bills. So he's got the tax take increased. He's got royalty increases. He's got uh, results coming through from the resources sector, which are extraordinary. And what do they want to do? Put them all out of business. So whenever Jim Chalmers has got his you know, nice voice on, you mm. know that the taxpayer is copping it in the neck. Uh, and they've got no real plan here, Daisy. They've got no idea. It's been absolute chaos. So they are living off the back of what we've set in place in terms of the structures for the economy. But we continue to see interest rates increasing. We've now seen an increase in the unemployment rate, uh, which will probably continue. The tax take is enormous. Uh, and yet Labor sits back and thinks that, you know, this is a great thing and they can just cruise through to the next election without any problems whatsoever. Mm. Well, I think the Australian people will have news for them at the next election. I, I really think so. I mean, I always, as the saying goes, you know, elections are generally won on economic issues. Uh, and there are certainly a, a lot of economic issues that Labor has going against them at this point. Now, Keith, just before we go, um, I have to ask you, you, you mentioned earlier in, in our lovely chat that, uh, you know, there's the Olympics to think of, the funding's been a shambles, all of that. Uh, there was an insider, I, I think it was the Australian that reported, an insider said that one of the reasons that Anastasia Palaszczuk was so upset that she lost 
lost the leadership was because she wanted to go to the Paris 2024 Olympics and do all that fun stuff. Do you, does, does that have a ring of truth to it, in your opinion? Well, certainly they like the red carpets, mm. uh, whether it's Mr. <laughs> Albanese or Anastasia. Uh, they certainly like to go to the big show. And I'm sure she'll, she'll still get to go to the Olympics. So I'm, I'm confident, Daisy, someone will find a way to uh, get the former Premier over there. Mm. But I think it was more the fact that she wanted to break Peter Beattie's record uh, and that now is not going to happen. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the greatest disappointments for, for Premier Palaszczuk. Mm. Uh, look, I, I get on with her reasonably well. I see her at events every now and again. But this is a hard-nosed decision by the unions, none of whom were elected. Uh, and the people of Queensland, I think they're going to have their say come October and this government will be gone. Look, I, I certainly hope so. Now, I, I have to ask you on, on the federal front, um, you know, things are not looking good for Labor federally either for all of the reasons um, that we have just discussed. Uh, Peter Dutton has said that he's very much, this is a three-year strategy that he has, not a six-year. He's determined uh, to win government again at the next election. Um, where do you see the federal opposition going? I mean, what, what's the plan to really take on Labor and, and get rid of them in three years instead of six? Well, firstly, we'll highlight the chaos of a Labor government. Uh, I've had any number of people come up and tell me that this is worse than Gough. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> probably right. It's worse than the Whitlam government. Wow. Uh, and for us, we, we clearly will have to have policies that Labor can't go with us on. So nuclear energy will be one. Uh, and you only have to look at the size of the footprint. So Chris Bowen wants to invest in things which are intermittent. I mean, you ask any dry land farmer how hard it is uh, to actually run a farm when you don't have irrigation and you have to rely on the weather. And he wants the entire Australian economy to rely on the fact that it may or may not be windy and it may or may not be sunny and there may or may not be a cyclone or who knows, a bird might fly over and a shadow knocks you out. It's a bit hard to tell. <laughs> so that's actually really, really dangerous. Mm. Uh, incredibly expensive. Transmission lines all over the place. And then for us, uh, things like the cashless debit card, which Labor knocked out because they're idealistically opposed. You know, we, we've just had a $400 million referendum on The Voice but they wouldn't listen to the local voices on the cashless debit card mm. uh, where it was so strongly supported. More than 70% of my electorate, uh, in, and of course in Sojourner and other areas, the local Aboriginal community, they wanted to keep it, but Labor won't listen to those voices. They mm. only listen to the Sydney Socialists, the Socialist <laughs> Alliance, etc. And of course, we saw what happened. So we'll have policies they can't go with us on. They'll be the right policies for Australia and it'll be a contest. You can be sure of that. Mm. Keith Pitt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, all the very, very best for next year, and I hope you and your family have a very Merry Christmas, and we will see you in 2024. Same to you, Daisy, and to your viewers. Hanukkah began this year on the 7th of December, a time for Jewish people worldwide to commemorate the ideals of Judaism and to come together to celebrate community. Tragically, this year's Hanukkah is marred by the atrocities committed by Hamas against Israelis on October 7th. And there will be many families in Israel who will spend the festival wracked with fear over the fate of their loved ones who are still being held hostage by the Islamic extremists of Hamas somewhere in Gaza. Which is why I find it so extraordinary that so many people are calling for a ceasefire when Israeli citizens are still in the clutches of terrorists. 
In fact, 153 countries have voted in favor of a resolution at the United Nations General Assembly calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza and the unconditional release of the remaining hostages. The resolution passed with 10 nations against and 23 countries abstaining. The USA was among the countries who voted against. Now, this might sound well and good, except for the fact it will give a leg up to the radical Islamists of Hamas and make Israel and the rest of the world more vulnerable to attacks from Islamic radicals in the future. And in any case, it's a pointless resolution. Israel has made it clear that were Hamas to surrender and release the hostages, the IDF would stop its strikes on Gaza. If this were really about humanitarianism rather than an anti-Israel initiative, the UN would be calling on Hamas to surrender rather than for Israel to lay down its arms. Which makes it all the more disgusting that Australia was one of the countries that voted in favour of this UN ceasefire resolution. As Israeli ambassador to Australia Amir Maimon put it on X, I find it difficult to understand how Australia can support Israel's right to defend its people from terrorist aggression while also voting in support of a ceasefire that will embolden Hamas and enable it to resume its attacks on Israeli. Um, Australia-UN's vote comes a day after Israel returned the remains of two murdered hostages from Gaza and rocket fire continued to rain down on southern Israel. This war can only end with Hamas being totally defeated and the liberation of all our hostages. What a sorry day to be an Australian indeed. Joining me to discuss the ceasefire resolution and all of the latest developments on the war in Israel and Gaza is Israeli politician Sharon Haskell. Sharon, thank you so much uh, for joining me on the show. Um, a lot of people around the world have said that a ceasefire would be like granting Hamas a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Would you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. Um, if we are to go in a ceasefire at this moment, it means that Israel surrendered and Hamas won. That's what it actually means. Hamas leadership keeps saying on and on again that they will just look for another occasion or they will try again whenever is possible to genocide our people, to murder children, to murder women until the last one of them. So what kind of a ceasefire? For what is this ceasefire? We understand that we have to bring back the safety and the security uh, of our to, to our children, to our family members. It cannot be the same. And for us to go into a ceasefire where we were in a ceasefire before 7th of October is just creating the exact same uh, situation that we were in before, where Hamas, will try at any occasion that they will have to create another murderous attack like that again. They will not stop. And that's why we have to completely eradicate Hamas. Hamas is an ISIS organization with an uh, extreme Islamic ideology uh, that, that uh, you know, is, is uh, violent and vicious and, 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 and really it, it's, it's horrifying what they've done and what they want to do. And so if you are looking for a better life here in the Middle East for Israelis, but also for Palestinians, 
because Hamas is using and abusing Palestinians as well. They don't care for the life of Israeli, but they also don't care for the life of their own people, the Palestinians. And so if we want to change this equation, if we want to search for a better future here in the middle in the Middle East where we we will be able to coexist, we have to finish our goals and we have to completely eradicate Hamas. Mm. Um, and I, it's very disappointing, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and an Australian delegation was here and I met with a few parliament members and I expressed to them uh, my disappointment uh, from the voting at the United Nations because you cannot say something and then contradict it completely with your voting. Mm. Um, but I have to say that, that they expressed their support uh, for the effort uh, of our war and for our people, and it was really heartwarming. Mm. Yes, I, I mean it's an it's an extraordinary um, juxtaposition, isn't it? You know, saying that Israel has a right to defend itself and then voting in in favour of, of the ceasefire. But I, I can tell you, Sharon, our, our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, uh, he represents the uh, an electorate that is full of uh, progressives, and currently he's not doing so well in the polls. So I get the sense that maybe he's trying to sort of you know get a few free points with progressive voters in Australia, which actually kind of makes it even more. Uh, disgusting and inconsistent, inconsistent if this is literally just for um, electoral gain. And, and look, you... Um, well, oh, yeah, go ahead, please. I, uh, Daisy, uh, it's, it's, it's important for me also to say uh, Hamas is, has de been declared as a terrorist organization in Australia as well. Mm. And I see a lot of protests, pro-Hamas protests, in the streets of, 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 of Australia where they are also calling for the genocide of Jews. The Jewish community in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Australia feels targeted. Mm. It feels there's so much tension. They've been violently attacked as well. I mean, on a Shabbos, uh, 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 the holy day, there were pro-Hamas protesters that came to protest in front of the synagogue. What were they trying to achieve? To, to support Hamas on a holy uh, day when, where the Jews are, are praying, where it's a sacred day to try and target Jewish uh, uh, communities? How does that have anything to do uh, with Israelis and with Palestinians? How does that benefit or help a single Palestinian in Gaza? Mm. Yeah, it, exactly. It's it's completely disgusting, and I've been just gobsmacked by um, the amount of anti-Semitism that is out there. It is just mind blowing and incredibly um, upsetting. And and, and look, um, on the subject of Hamas, my big question is, as I mentioned in my introduction. Israel would stop with the strikes if Hamas surrendered and handed over the rest of the hostages. Why, Sharon, are the ceasefire enthusiasts not calling for Hamas to surrender and hand over the hostages? Why does it have to be a, a ceasefire? Why not just say, Hamas, give it up? That's a great question, uh, Daisy. And, and, and this is the question that our ambassador of the United Nations was asking. He actually publicized the number for Hamas, for the leaders of the United Nations to call Hamas and ask them for a ceasefire. Mm. I mean, you don't need to come to us. They really need to go to Hamas. Qatar is hosting the leadership of Hamas in their country. They can put pressure on them to actually surrender. 
Um, Hamas didn't uh, took their guns down. They are still full on fighting. Our soldiers, they are holding our family members captive in tunnels in an underground city that they have built for a war. Mm. I mean, they are shooting rockets from the humanitarian areas where Palestinians flee to find refuge from the war. So how can you come in any kind of complaint to Israel and not to Hamas? I mean, the last ceasefire, Hamas has promised part of the deal of releasing terrorists, prisoners with blood on their hands from our prisons, was that the Red Cross will be able to go and visit our family members who are being kept hostage in Gaza. Mm. And they didn't fulfill that. How can you trust a terrorist organization with anything? More so, it's a terrorist organization that is run now by Iran, backed by Iran, trained in Iran. Iran is not just Israel's problem. Iran is all of us, all of the Western countries' problem. It vouched and swore to take over the world literally, mm. to have Islam as, as, as dominant religion all around the world. They have military cells, uh, uh, battalions in different countries, not just here uh, in, in Gaza, but in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and Yemen and, 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 and in South America and Central America mm. and in Europe. We know how they're operating through Hezbollah. And so the, 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 the war that we're actually fighting that's not an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm -mm. This is not a territorial conflict. This is an Iranian war, literally. This is a war on our values, on the way we live, on the values that Daisy, me and you are sharing, like mm. democracies and freedom, liberties, equality, women's rights, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. That's what we're fighting. Mm. This is who they are fighting against. That's what Iran and Hamas want to eradicate. And as much as we are the front in this war, if we, God forbid, ever lose this front in the Middle East, you are going to be next in mm -hmm. Europe and in Australia and in America. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it is just mind blowing that people simply refuse to see that. Like, just, just unbelievable. Um, now, you've made um, an incredibly interesting point recently. Uh, you called for the defunding of the UNRWA, which is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Um, and you've argued that their schools have been turned into breeding grounds for terrorism. And beyond that, that the entire organization is fueling hate between Palestine and Israel. Can, can you elaborate? on that for the viewers? Absolutely. And it's important for me to say, Daisy, we're not against humanitarian aid. We want, we don't want the Palestinians and the images are heartbreaking for us as well. We don't want to see people who don't have any kind of humanitarian aid, but we have a problem with a front of a humanitarian aid when it's actually a cover-up for funding a terrorist organization and terrorist activities. Mm. And that's what UNRWA is. UNRWA has been indoctrinating in UNRWA's school for years, children, to violence, to hatred, and to perpetuating uh, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, when you look on UNRWA school, there are underground cities underneath their schools and underneath their hospitals. They are being used as headquarters of Hamas, mm. bunkers for, for ammunition. We found that now uh, when we entered some of these schools, there were literally classrooms 
with ammunition, with RPGs. Uh, some of it was actually covered by UNRWA's bags of humanitarian aid. They were hidden inside those bags. And I mean, uh, we know that for years. Look on the, you know, UNRWA is actually employing 10,000 workers in Gaza. That's a United Nations organization that's paying the salary of 10,000 Gaza. It's a good salary. It's a good status. And you know who's getting those jobs? It mm. is the family members and activists of Hamas. Why does Hamas need to have this privilege when Palestinians who don't want to take part in a combat or hatred or violence against Israelis will not receive their, these positions who are paid by the international community? Mm. So there's much more to say about UNRWA, but it is your responsibility, Daisy. These are millions of Australian taxpaying dollars who are going into the UNRWA organization. Mm. And you have to take responsibility and demand transparency to see where it's going and to manage these funds so that they don't reach the hands of Hamas. Mm. Yes, I, I, I mean, it is very, very well said, honestly, Sharon. I mean, it is, I think humanitarian uh, organization is a front for a whole lot of things that we that we probably don't realize. Um, and it's very important, as you say, that we, we call these things out. Um, now, Sharon, before we go, um, I have a question for you. We see a lot of numbers coming out of Gaza in terms of the, you know, what Hamas says are the casualties. I saw an estimate of 15,000, then it was 18,000, guessing now it's around 20,000. Um, a lot of people, including organizations like the UN, take these numbers as gospel. But this is Hamas, one, pointing out the numbers. How can these, how can we trust these are real numbers? Particularly, my question is, how can Hamas calculate them so quickly? You know, if 20,000 people have died, how is Hamas just getting these numbers on the fly? I mean, should we be treating these numbers with, with any kind of weight? Well, you're absolutely right. This is an absurd, it's like a comedy. Mm. And, you know, it's a hypocrisy from journalists who, who their credibility is really important and they're taking numbers from a terrorist organization where they know they're benefiting from uh, exploding or, or, or uh, um, um, inflating those numbers. Uh, and we know that for a fact. I mean, would you take numbers of casualties or information from ISIS mm. uh, or <laughs> take information from Al-Qaeda? Uh, you know, it, it's absurd. Mm. But it, it, it is ridiculous that when it comes to Israel, there's a different standard and there's a different kind of moral or integrity for journalists as well. Mm. And look, th there was one event where uh, Hamas went and immediately uh, blamed Israel for targeting a specific hospital mm, in yes, Gaza. Yeah. Um, as soon as soon as they sent out this uh, uh, news uh, uh, report that Israel targeted a hospital, they said immediately there were about 500 casualties. Mm. Then we pulled out proof that it was actually the jihad Islamic rockets they were shooting from the, the vicinity of this hospital yep. towards Israel. One of the missiles was faulty. It fell straight on that hospital because they are using those facilities as part of their war bases. Mm. And so as soon as the world realized that that was actually uh, the Islamic Jihad, 
that caused uh, uh, the, the tragedy in this hospital, the numbers went down, I think, to almost like 10%, like 56 mm. uh, uh, Something people like that. who were killed. And that was within a few hours. Mm, and it was because, so, uh, as uh, well, they, they realised that uh, they made this big fuss about it allegedly, Israel allegedly bombing a hospital, but it turned out, as you said, it was um, the jihadist organisation. And two, it ended up looking like it only hit the car park, like not even the hospital itself. But yeah. there's these massively inflated yeah. numbers uh, came out and, and journalists just, just bought it. Um, Sharon Haskell, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the program tonight um, and for giving us these, these this latest news. Um, I know it will be a very bittersweet Hanukkah for you this year, but I, I do wish you um, as happy a time as you could possibly have. Um, God bless, and um, I'd love to talk to you again next year to continue um, covering this in incredibly important situation in Israel. Thank you so much, Daisy, uh, for you covering uh, the fact and the news and to bring out the, the real data uh, from the conflict as well. Thank you for your moral clarity. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I wish you, your family and the entire Australian nation a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you so much. And we will talk soon. Well, with a new and rather questionable Labour Premier at the helm of the state of Queensland, it's important that the LNP opposition step up to the plate. But it is not just the opposition who is responsible for holding this incompetent Queensland Labour state government to account. It's up to the minor parties as well. And with a state election around the corner in 2024, it is fantastic to hear that a new, highly efficient candidate from One Nation has entered the fray. As Chief of Staff to Federal Senator Pauline Hanson herself, he is no stranger to political adversity and has fielded just about every punch you can be thrown without actually being a politician. Running next year for the central Queensland state seat of Keppel, we are so lucky to have here tonight to talk about his campaign, the new candidate for One Nation, the very excellent James Ashby. James? You are just too kind. <laughs> <laughs> it is so delightful to have you here. Have you been well? Yeah, I have, Daisy. Yeah, thank you very much. Very kind intro. And uh, with, with an intro like that, maybe you should be coming doing some campaigning <laughs> with me. Well, no, I am. I'm thrilled to hear uh, that you're running. Um, now, you have been in the thick yeah. of Queensland politics for a very long time now. What was the straw that broke the camel's back to prompt you to run in this next election? Well, I've known this seat of Keppel for 23 years now. I first moved up there when I was in my late teens and uh, worked up there in media for a number of years before thinking that the grass was always greener on the other side. And it took me until seven years ago to actually get back there. Um, so I've seen a, a vast change in the way in which Keppel uh, operates today. We, we used to have two fantastic resorts up there. One was Great Keppel Island Resort uh, mm. and the other was Iwasaki Resort both of which have closed down and, and nobbled the region for many years. If it wasn't for locals being so proactive uh, in, in getting their businesses moving, well, I don't think the area would have survived. It certainly wasn't due to the help of the state government, that's for sure. 
Mm, well, it's it's great to see um, someone who has such a connection uh, to to the seat actually running for it. I mean, it's Keppel has been largely a Labour-held seat, but um, have you perhaps mm. gotten the sense that there is in fact an atmosphere for change at the moment? There's certainly an appetite for change across the entire part of Queensland. Uh, central Queensland, where I am, in the seat of Keppel there, there's, there's always been a desire for change. The problem is there's been very little opposition uh, capable of being able to put up arguments against the current government. And that's why they've had three successful terms of being re-elected. I don't think they'll get a fourth. I think that uh, this is definitely a seat that the uh, commentators and those within the political realm will be watching over the next uh, nine to 11 months. Uh, do I think it's possible to shift Labor? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. And that's why I put my hand up. I think there's plenty of opportunity in Queensland. As you're well aware, we're in the grip of a, an enormous issue with juvenile crime, an issue that has been around for more than just this term of government. The problem, however, is that Labor are very soft on crime. As you know, in other states, Labor have raised the age of criminality from 10 up into uh, 12 and 14, in line with what the UN have been requesting for a long time. One Nation have said, we will not support that one bit. I don't care whether they are aiming to raise that age threshold to 12 or whether they go to do it in line with uh, the UN's request of 14. One Nation will just oppose it. So in a minority held government, whether it be Labor or a coalition uh, government after uh, November or, or October 26, uh, One Nation just won't support raising that age of criminality because at the end of the day, kids have got to learn. They certainly know by the age of 10 what's right from wrong and we shouldn't be making excuses for them. We should be holding them to account. Mm, well, certainly um, youth crime, as you said, is, is such an issue in Queensland at the moment. And it's, it's interesting, you know, with Cabo being a, a Labor-held seat, I've always thought that actually Labor to One Nation is quite a logical shift if you are a voter, like, and you're an old-school yeah. Labor voter, you're tired of the wokeism. I mean, the big example with the Palaszczuk, former Palaszczuk government, um, was Sharon, Shannon Fentiman changing, um, you know, being allowing people to identify as whatever they want on their birth certificate. I mean, people in Keppel, surely they wouldn't want to vote for that kind of stuff, would they? No, and they also largely rejected the voice to parliament as mm. well. Uh, keeping in mind, Queensland was the biggest no state out of the entire country. Keppel had one of the highest votes against the voice to parliament, and yet the current member that's there from Labor uh, has actioned her vote and put us in uh, instead for a treaty here <gasps> in Queensland. That will be largely rejected. Yeah, so I, I for one, will reject a treaty uh, in Queensland. One Nation as a whole will reject it. So there are going to be a lot of Queensland voters who uh, reject even the coalition's support of that treaty as well. Now, I know they've walked back a little bit from it, but they haven't outright said that they won't support it moving forward in the next term of parliament. So uh, Queenslanders know where they stand with One Nation. They certainly know where they stand with me. Um, I think that's the robust nine years coming up uh, early next year. I've been working with Pauline Hanson. You know where, where I stand on things. You know mm. where Pauline Hanson stands. You know where One Nation stand. And we've actually got the guts to say the things that people are thinking. Mm. Well, exactly. And look, James, what um, if you are elected, and I sincerely hope that you are, um, what do you hope to achieve for the people of Keppel? The people of Keppel have a great opportunity uh, to vote somebody who is broadly different from the major two parties. As we know, Daisy, 
the two major parties have to vote in step with their party. Mm -hmm. And we saw many years ago when decisions were being made over Great Keppel Island and whether to grant them a casino licence, the local member said she supported giving them a casino licence, but when her party said, uh-uh, you're not to do that, she voted against the wishes of those people in Keppel. And the same thing with the Liberal National Party. They do exactly the same. They very rarely cross the floor. Uh, there's a candidate there, and yes, he's a nice bloke, but does he have the ticker to actually stand up and represent the people of our electorate? No. Uh, I intend to make sure that One Nation represent everybody in Keppel. I also believe that the Liberal National Party are going to uh, struggle to win 14 seats by uh, the accounts of not only their own party, but also pollsters who are very confident that the crossbench will have balance of power after the October 26 election. That means that Keppel actually will have a stronger say, not just in our region, but right across the entire state. And when you do have the balance of power as One Nation has on a federal level, you're not only considering the needs of your local area or in federal, obviously, we look at the state, but you have to consider the whole state. And I think that's what uh, I, I certainly take as a, as a responsible quest ahead of us if we're fortunate enough to win the seat of Keppel and other seats throughout the state. Yes, we may be able to help a coalition uh, cobble together the numbers to form government. I'd like to think they can. I believe Queenslanders need change. And I've said it uh, before and I'll say it again. I'd rather drink arsenic hmm. than help Labor have a fourth term in government in Queensland. Mm, so there will be no deals done with Labor then by One Nation? No. No preference. Fantastic. No, no. And, and, and I, hope, I hope the Coalition recognise that. I hope that they don't pursue One Nation. I hope they pursue the Labor government because you only have a certain number of friends in politics and the Coalition need to know we're the closest thing they've got to a friend ahead of October 26. That is very, very well said and an excellent philosophy, James. Now, I have to yeah. get your reaction on the big news in Queensland politics this week, which is that Anastasia Palaszczuk is gone, she is done and dusted, she mm -hmm. is out of politics, and I, for one, could not be happier. James, what went through your head when you first heard this joyous news? Well, we all knew it was coming. A couple of weeks ago, I'd attended a function here in Brisbane and I'd seen Gary Bullock, who is the head of the workers' union here in Queensland. He basically runs Queensland. He's not an elected member, but he determines who takes up cabinet seats, who leads the Labor government and what policy and legislation is passed in this state. And I could see members of uh, the Labor Party hanging off him, no different to dags off the backside of a sheep. And uh, you could see that something was brewing behind the scenes. Uh, there were some former Labor members there that were saying that they were doing everything in their efforts to have discussions with Anastasia Palaszczuk to try and shift her before the next election. I think a lot of Queenslanders are a bit disappointed that they don't get the chance to send her a very clear message. What Anastasia Palaszczuk has actually sent the rest of Queensland is a as a bill for a by-election which will take place in January. The last by-elections that were held, one in Queensland on a council level for a new mayor, that cost taxpayers about $750,000 in Rockhampton, and the other was held up in the seats up around uh, the Toowoomba region in Groom, and that cost taxpayers $2.7 So I'm guessing the seat of Inala is going to be in for a very, very costly bill that all Queenslanders will have to pay mm. somewhere in excess of a million dollars. So it's not going to be wow. a cheap exercise to go through a by-election, only then to go to another election later in the year.
Mm, yeah, it's it's certainly not a good look for Labor. And, and look, James, just before we go, can you tell oh. me, do you think the shift in the party leader will do anything to better Queensland's Labor's chances of, of winning the next election? Look, Stephen Miles clearly thinks he can shift voters' opinions on the current Labor Party under his leadership. But, yeah, unlike you, I scoff at that idea. And I think that um, they are going to get belted at the next election. Uh, the, the, the thing is, though, what Queenslanders will do... See, preferences are, are, are not optional. They are... Uh, you have to uh, distribute your preferences. The Labor Party, as we know in this state and right across the country, have always had a cosy relationship with the Greens. Mm. In a minority government, if people vote Labor at the next election, they will end up with a Labor-Greens government. And that means disaster for our state, which does not need a left-wing agenda, a communist regime behind the scenes, pulling the strings with unions of a Labor government in the future. It's just, it's not what Queenslanders want. If you want change, if you want to vote differently, vote One Nation. We will help a coalition form government and we will get Queensland back on track. James Ashby, fabulous to have you on the program. Congratulations on your upcoming run and I hope you have a really wonderful Christmas and New Year. Good on you, Daisy. Thank you. You too. Merry Christmas. Well... That's all we have for the Daisy Cousins Show for 2023. I do hope you've enjoyed watching the program as much as I have loved hosting it, and I'll hope you'll be joining me again next year for more of the Daisy Cousins Show. But don't change the channel. Coming up after the break is 2023's final episode of Daisy Cousins Presents. <laughs>